0: This is The Legends and Icons of Travel, an audiobook podcast by Gary Bembridge. The stories behind the most famous legends and icons of travel across the years, from the book of the same name, being written by Gary Bembridge. The biggest misconception about Air Force One is that it's an aeroplane. This is quite simply wrong. When most people think of Air Force One, they think of the very large and impressive blue and white Boeing 747 that they see in the news. The most familiar new shot being that of the most powerful politician in the world walking up or down those long aircraft stairs up to the door of the jet emblazoned with the presidential seal, pausing to wave and smile to the press corps with their eager lenses zoomed in on him and, of course, on that massive plane. However, all is not as simple and straightforward as it seems. Firstly, Air Force One is actually the radio call sign used by and to identify any military plane that the US President is flying on, irrespective of what that plane is. The call sign was first used in the 1950s when carrying President Eisenhower, but it was only commonly adopted and used during President Kennedy's term of office. Before this, the planes used by previous presidents tended to have their own nicknames, which were usually painted on the sides of the plane, Names like Harry S. Truman's Independence and Dwight D. Eisenhower's Columbine III. The significance of the call sign Air Force One and the rules surrounding its use is important. For example, when the plane takes off returning an outgoing president home after his replacement has been sworn in, it cannot travel as Air Force One. Only an aircraft carrying the new incumbent president can use that all-important call sign. Taking off with the plane's own tailgate number as its call sign is one of the first outward signs to an outgoing president that he has just lost his immense power. While flying Richard Nixon back to California in 1974, after he had resigned following the scandal around Watergate, the plane carrying him actually changed its call sign en route. This happened the minute the captain received confirmation that President Ford had been sworn in who then requested air traffic control, no longer referred to the plane as Air Force One. Nixon took off on Air Force One, but landed with nothing more than the call sign of the plane, Sam 27000. The change of call sign was the final humiliation, reflecting his fall from grace and loss of power, and something that critics and commentators no doubt relished in. However, although the call sign Air Force One can apply to any military plane, carrying the President. In more recent times, the call sign has primarily been used on planes that have been purchased and specially allocated for the President. But even here lies another surprise. For there's not just one of the expensive and distinctive-looking Boeing 747 200 B jets in the fleet. There are actually two identical planes. The planes have the tail numbers 28,000 and 29,000, and came into service during the presidency of George Bush in 1990 and 1991, respectively. But these are not like any other Boeing 747 that you and I may have travelled on for pleasure or business. Not just because these planes cost dramatically more to fit out with luxurious-sized rooms, offices and high-tech communications equipment. Not because they carry only 70 passengers and 26 crew versus the over 300 that they do on flights that we have been on. But they are very different because these jets have been designed to withstand the violent electromagnetic pulse from a nuclear blast, Can eject flares to throw off missiles block radar, and can stay in the air, theoretically, forever, as they can be refuelled in flight. These unique features mean the planes can provide a safe haven or war bunker in the air during a crisis for the President and his closest aides. This is something that Air Force One planes have done on occasion and will, no doubt, do so again. However, in spite of all this, to the outside world and the general public, there is no doubting that these powerful and immense planes, which are as tall as five stories of a building and a full office block in length, are a powerful symbol of the might of the US presidency. They are not just the ultimate boy toy, a toy that overshadows even the wildest dreams many children harbour while growing up, but they are also a personal fleet at the disposal of the president with significance and scale beyond the reach of any other leader or the richest billionaire. The significance of Air Force One has been gleefully embraced by even the most austere of US presidents, all of whom have been seen to use the plane to scurry across the country and abroad in ever-increasing amounts. Using the plane not only as the most visually stunning and dramatic way of arriving, but all have also exploited the power and privilege that the planes offer. Using Air Force One and the flair and style it brings to impress other global leaders on foreign trips, or to reward and court politicians and benefactors with trips on the stunning and symbolic plane. Even more importantly, the various planes that have used the call sign Air Force One have also played a significant role in history, and have been indelibly intertwined with some of the most dramatic and historical events of recent times. Air Force One has enabled US Presidents to venture out from the United States with speed and with massive range to weave their global vision and negotiate political changes, especially in the build-up to the end of the Cold War. But it has also served as a place of refuge and safety when it seemed the Presidency in the country was under threat and attack, such as when President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in 1963 and in the confusion as the events of September 11, 2001 unfolded when President George W. Bush, who was on a visit to Florida, took to the air in Air Force One on hearing of the attacks and crisscrossed the United States. He only finally landed back in Washington at 7 p.m. To understand the nature of the significance and the importance of Air Force One and its role for the United States Presidency, you need to understand and reflect on the history of its involvement with flight. For the Presidency has a long association with flight, embracing it very early in its development, and remained at the forefront of aviation. Early on, as the United States was in her formative years, and especially post the American War of Independence in 1776 and then the Civil War, which started in 1861, one of the biggest challenges facing any president was the sheer scale, size and diversity of the country. Even as the railroads expanded, it was still very hard for any president to get out of Washington and to meet the people across the nation, or even just to be seen. Trips were long and tiring, and meant spending extended time away from the centre of political power and influence in Washington, something all presidents were reluctant to do, with the possible exception of briefly escaping the very hot and uncomfortable midsummer heat of Washington, along with the rest of the political elite. The first president to take to the air was President Theodore Roosevelt, who shocked, surprise and scared all of his advisers and security staff when he took up the half-joking offer by arch hoxley a well-known aviator to take a short flight in october 1910 the offer came as the president toured one of the growing and popular air shows near st louis where daring aviators experimenting with the fast-growing technology of flight would race and perform for thrilled crowds Although the flight was short and the pilot, terrified of damaging his highly valuable passenger, only flew some 200 feet off the ground, it created a passion and an enthusiasm in the President, aware that this new form of travel may one day provide a useful option for the Presidency. It wasn't though until the Second World War in 1943, some 30 years after that first flirtation with air travel, that the first official flight by a President would take place. The flight took Franklin D. Roosevelt to the historic Casablanca Conference in Morocco in January 1943 to meet with the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. This was their first of a series of meetings and was to discuss the plans for the invasion of Italy as a major push to start the pushback of the Nazi occupation of Europe. The flight took place in response to the very serious threat that German U-boats and Navy, who were aggressively patrolling the Atlantic during the Second World War, would attack any boat or convoy carrying the President. It was decided to use a Boeing 314 seaplane called the Dixie Clipper. Due to the range of the plane, the plane flew first 1,600 miles from Miami to Port of Spain, Trinidad, and then 1,200 miles in eight hours to in Brazil, which was the narrowest point across the Atlantic. From here he flew 2,500 miles across the ocean to Bathurst in British-controlled Gambia. This leg of the trip took 19 hours. He then still had to fly onto Casablanca on a military transport. But it had set the precedent, the major leap into air travel as an indispensable part of the presidential travel had been established. So much so that by the time of his 1946 trip to his third meeting with Churchill and the Russian President, he had a plane that the military had dedicated to transport the President, which was named the Sacred Cow. It was a C-54 Skymaster which had been adapted with special features, such as an elevator to get the wheelchair-bound President into the plane easily. After this flight, all Presidents would use air travel as a key part of their arsenal to travel around the country and abroad. However, although Presidents such as Harry S. Truman and Dwight D. Eisenhower used planes, the first plane bought especially for Presidential travel, rather than using adapted military craft to act as the official Air Force One, was bought in 1962. This was a C-137C and had the tail sign 26,000. It was also this plane that ended up setting in place the very distinctive design that has been used on all dedicated Air Force One planes since then. The youthful President Kennedy, who was image and design aware, commissioned the designer Raymond Lowry, who had been recommended by his wife, Jackie Kennedy, to create a stylish and suitable look for the planes. It was Lowry who came up with the striking blue and white designs we have become so familiar with. This plane with the tail sign 26,000, with its new livery, was also the plane that was to be one of the most infamous and photographed of all the presidential aircraft when it took centre-stage role on the fateful events of Kennedy administration on the 22nd of November 1963. For this was the plane that flew John F. Kennedy down to Dallas where he was assassinated while touring the city in an open-top limousine. It then acted as the official venue for the swearing-in of the new President Lyndon Johnson, where close to 30 devastated and dazed aides had to cram into the rapidly warming cabin, where a hastily summoned District Judge Sarah T. Hughes swore in Vice President Johnson into office as the new president. The murder John F. Kennedy's casket had been put on board at the back of the plane, by making space by removing seats at the rear. The hasty changes to the plane reportedly having been made as Mrs. Kennedy had refused to let her husband's body be placed in the hold. The plane then fled back to the security and familiarity of Washington with a new president and its cargo of senior aides in the body of John F. Kennedy. This 26000 thousand tail-sign plane later became associated with the more positive and significant groundbreaking political event. It was this plane that took President Nixon on his historic trip to China, the first ever visit by an American president beginning a process of greater openness and trade. This plane remained in service until 1998, when it was placed on permanent display in Ohio at the U.S. Air Force Museum. It was replaced by an aircraft with the tail sign 27,000, which had a very long 29-year service, serving Presidents Nixon, Ford, Carter and Reagan, and acting as a backup plane for Presidents George Bush and Bill Clinton. The growing symbolism of Air Force One was becoming more evident throughout these years. The sight of President Gerald Ford bumping his head and falling down the stairs of the 27,000 plane being attributed as a major fact in his defeat by Jimmy Carter. The image of him stumbling out of this Air Force One led to him being cast in the public's consciousness as a bumbling president. This hard-working plane was used prolifically by all presidents as the world went through growing globalisation and the thawing of the Cold War. President Reagan alone used the plane for 211 trips during his term of office, many of these shuttling him to and from his many conferences and meetings with Mikhail Gorbachev, the Russian president. It also took him to a divide of Berlin, where he famously called on Mr Gorbachev to tear down this wall, not long before the Russians stood back and let the East German population breach and literally tear down the wall. Another key feature of... Presidential air travel was established right on the first official flight that Franklin D. Roosevelt undertook in 1943 to attend the Casablanca Conference in the Sacred Cow seaplane, that being that every trip is treated as a military operation, and the supporting logistics can be quite staggering. For the purposes of the Casablanca flight, the military escorted his plane with a staggering 36 fighter planes, This was done in the context of a full-scale war that was underway. But even today, with the concerns about the threats to the presidency, the security and the massive logistics surrounding every trip by the president is quite phenomenal. While on the surface, from the public perspective, a trip by the president on Air Force One is just that. He gets on the plane at its base, some 16 kilometres from the White House at Andrews Air Force Base, and jets into his desired destination. The plane the president arrives on is just the tip of the iceberg, of the full scale operation. At a minimum, a C 141 stair lifter cargo carrier will have flown to the venue in advance, carrying tons of equipment, such as the armor plated vehicles and weapons that form the presidential motorcade. Then there is usually a charter plane carrying journalists. On board Air Force One will be support staff, like a personal physician for the president, security staff, and critical baggage, like the nuclear codes known as the football. But with foreign trips, the scale of the entourage and supporting equipment and planes is mind-blowingly huge. For example, it is possible for these trips that there can be several hundred people in the form of support staff, reporters, security staff and aides. This can involve there being, in addition to Air Force One, five transport planes with the equipment, vehicles and additional security and support staff, up to four fuel tanker planes and a special operations plane in case of a major global conflict. One of the largest and most controversial visits that caused huge public debate and negative comment was when President Clinton jetted into China on Air Force One in 1998 with two backup aircraft, enough people to fill all 600 rooms at the Ritz-Carlton in Shanghai, and 60 vehicles. Then there were some 300 reporters on top of that. Despite the very public face of Air Force One, there is still a generous proportion of mystery and speculation surrounding the plane. The actual out of the plane is unknown to any but a small and select group of people. There is no public way of knowing exactly what is and is not inside the plane. Very few people, even very senior dignitaries, who have travelled on the plane have seen more than the area they are allocated to, the large meeting, dining room and perhaps the President's office. But this has not stopped eager websites such as howthingswork.com from trying to recreate the layout by piecing together what they can and of course, for Hollywood, to take an educated guess. Although in the 1997 film Air Force One starring Harrison Ford as the president, the layout used in that film seemed to draw heavily on the howthingswork.com website version. The only things the Air Force states Air Force do confirm about the contents of Air Force One is that it has what they call an executive suite, which consists of an office, dressing room and bathroom facilities, a large conference dining room and separate accommodation for guest staff, secret service security and the press. They do also add, as it does not pose a security threat, that there are six passenger laboratories and a special compartment that can be used for medical emergencies. Although for security reasons the plane is designed to be as self-sufficient as possible, it has features like a self-contained baggage load and even its own built-in stairs, so the plane does not need to come in contact with any ground staff and services. In the film Air Force One, the plane is an escape pod that would allow a president to flee the plane and float back to Earth. This is something that has been denied, although the more imaginative fans of the plane believe, or want to believe, that the authorities would deny the existence of some of the more exotic and mysterious gadgets that they've come to expect after growing up on a diet of James Bond and Mission Impossible Adventures, packed full of amazing, fanciful and unexpected devices and features. But even if the plane is in reality nothing more than a super-deluxe, tailored Boeing 747, with some clever self sustaining features like in-air fueling and its own baggage loading and stairs, it still stands for something much more significant than just an expensive personal commuter plane. On a practical level, it enables the US President to take his office with him no matter how far he travels. He can stay in contact and run in the country. In fact, the 85 telephones on board means everyone with him can keep in touch with whoever they need to, all at the same time. But its real significance is a huge symbol and in how it is used to represent the power behind the presidency. The symbolism of the president emerging from this massive plane and walking down the stairs, he never used the walkways that whisk him into a terminal, seeming to dramatise the power behind the man. While Air Force One could be seen as the ultimate in personal commuting, a masterpiece of design acting as the flying Oval Office, it has over the years earned its place as an icon. What started as being a more practical and efficient way to travel to avoid attack on Franklin D. Roosevelt by the German Navy has over the years earned its place as a symbol of the power of the US President. You've been listening to the Legends and Icons of Travel, the stories behind the most famous legends and icons of travel across the years, from the book of the same name, being written by Gary Bembridge. If you have any comments, please email me at Gary. At Bembridge.co.uk. To subscribe to the podcast, search on iTunes or Yahoo for legends of, and icons of travel.